Two sisters lived on separate sides of the states. One in NYC and the other LA. They both moved to Chicago and decided to stay. Now here's their playful podcast packed with Kid Lit Parlay. Children's books. Are they really that great? Talking children's books is with Kate and Fuse 8. Children's books. Why, what, and how? Fuse 8 and Kate will break it down for you now. Folks, we don't have a lot of guest speakers on our podcast, but because we recently celebrated our 100th episode of Fuse 8 and Kate with the cat in the hat, we figured it might behoove us to speak with the man who could arguably be called the premier Dr. Seuss scholar working in the United States today. Phil Nell is director of Kansas State University's English Department's program in children's literature. His Crockett Johnson and Ruth. How an Unlikely Couple Found Love, Dodged the FBI, and Transformed Children's Literature won the Southwest Popular American Culture Association's Rollins Book Award and was named a Children's Literature Association Honor Book. Phil is also the author of Was the Cat in the Hat Black? The Hidden Racism of Children's Literature and The Need for Diverse Books, as well as the annotated Cat in the Hat. So thank you so much for talking with me, Phil. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, I appreciate it. You know, we... uh. I was on the podcast with Kate. We were talking about the cat in the hat and I did touch a fair amount on your work um, with the cat in the hat and the cat's complicated past. But right from the start talking to you, I just want to separate the fact from the legend when it comes to the creation of the book itself. (laughs) Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of that out there. I'm sure you've heard variations on how the cat got started. The one that I always heard was Dr. Seuss was given a dare to write a book using only a certain number of words, and he did it. That's why we have the cat. Uh, What's the true story? Well, the reason there are so many stories is that Seuss liked to tell them. So, you know, when he was talking to reporters, he was much more interested in telling them an entertaining story than in telling them a true one. So (laughs) that's probably why. Um, but the the real origin of the cat in the hat is that it was the 1950s and people were worried that American kids were not learning to read. And Seuss had been in um, the military with uh, William Spaulding, who was then director of Houghton Mifflin's Educational Division. And he posed this challenge to Seuss. He said, write me a book that first graders can't put down. He gave Seuss a word list, and, you know, so for the first time, Seuss had to limit his vocabulary for a book that he was writing. And the way Seuss tells it, and here's where your fiction will enter, the way Seuss tells it is that, you know, he looked at the word list and almost went out of his head. Uh, He wanted to write a story about a queen zebra, but neither queen nor zebra were on the list. So he said, you know, I'll, I'll look at the list and the first two words that rhyme that I see will be the title of the book, and I found cat and I found hat, and so that's how it became the cat and the hat. That's probably not true, but that was his favorite story about it. Um, What is true, in addition to the Houghton Mifflin stuff, um, is that Seuss's ideas usually began with images rather than with words, and in the earliest versions of his stories about the origin of the cat, that's what he says. He talks about doodling and coming up with coming up with the picture 
first. So that's probably where it begins. Um, but as I say, Seuss is an unreliable source. And attentive listeners to this podcast may, may have noticed, I'm talking about Hot and Mifflin, and you may be saying to yourself, self, you may be saying, didn't Random House publish Dr. Okay, I was literally going to about? say that. Yes, I, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I was like, wait, HMH did it? But I thought that was a Random House book. It is a Random House book. They, they did a special agreement so that Hot and Mifflin would do the educational market and Random House would do the popular market. So Does that stand today? Uh, no, 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 it does not stand today. Um, it, was a, it was a popular book. People bought it. That is to say, yeah. the buying public bought it. Educators did not warm to it quite as quickly, or at least that is one way to read the mm, less impressive sales of Hot and Mifflin. And ultimately, Random House, you know, bought them out. Or that may not be quite the right phrase, but but ultimately, Random House took control of of all production and distribution of of the Cat in the Hat uh, book. How did Random House even get in on the deal? Was he usually a Random House author? Oh yeah, he was a Random House author since uh, 1939. So yeah, oh, okay. But but uh, I think Bennett Cerf, who was his author at the time, <laughs> knew that it was important to let Seuss be on kind of a long leash um, because he was Seuss, and right. that he would uh, chafe at <laughs> being told what to do. So at least that's my understanding of it. Um, so that that I think is is why there was this unusual agreement. But as I say, um, you know, it was a, a much bigger hit with the public than with with educators, or at least that is one way to read the sales numbers. But it, it did it did very well. It did very well for, for Random House and launched the beginner book series. Or if again, if you want to be technical, um, <laughs> it, it's not actually the first book branded a beginner book. Uh, the first ones actually come out uh, the following year uh, with the Cat in the Hat comes back. A fly went by. Oh, fly, big ball of string. Yeah, um, uh, uh, th those those are actually the first ones that are marketed as you know for beginning readers and kind of launched the beginner book series. But retroactively, the Cat in the Hat has been identified as the book that launched the beginner book series, and that's not wrong. It did. It just didn't have that on the cover. Actually, and another question I have for you, while I have you, here's something I've always wondered: the English. The British don't seem to care two hoots about Dr. Seuss. It doesn't seem to have caught on there. Is that true? Um, I would say that Seuss has been slower to catch on in the UK than okay. in the US, Canada, Australia, or New Zealand. You you can buy him there, and he is known there, and certainly uh, he is known there now. But uh, in, in so the, is that because of the films? Um, yeah, I think the films have played a role. Um, um, and what, but when Seuss was writing the books, you know, he had a much bigger following, obviously in the U.S., but then also Canada, Australia, New Zealand. He was a little, a little slower to catch on um, in the U.K. Uh, one might speculate that his verse was seen as a bit too uh, unruly and and not proper enough. Although that's mm -hmm. also not quite fair because there's certainly a long tradition of unruliness in, say, British children's nonsense. But but he wasn't. Um, he wasn't initially uh, popular there like he was in the States. And, of course, he has never been as well-known in non-English-speaking countries where his work is available in translation. But, you know, part of what makes the work work 
is the language. And so right. it's going to depend upon how a translator is able to render his peculiar oh, we, phrase we, in a language. So. We, we could probably go do an entire podcast just on the translations of Dr. Seuss alone, I suspect. So, I mean, yeah, I, I have many different translations of cat. So, but I, yeah, I mean, my, my, I had heard before that, oh, well, the English didn't really like rhyming children's books. Uh, they had their Rupert bears rhyming couplets, but then that's the not true. came and it changed everything. And, yeah. You know. But I mean, have, have people who said that heard of Edward Lear? Well, exactly, right. You know, uh, he was writing uh, a century earlier, and mm -hmm. those did fairly well, as I recall. So, yes. yeah, so, so that's so that's just simply not true. So let's get into the cat's complicated history, then. Uh, yeah. Sure, yeah. yeah. What the hey? So in your book, um, you mentioned that one of, and I think this comes from Seuss, one of the stories he told was that he got on the elevator to go, you know, up, to talk to, I guess, who was it he was speaking to? He was speaking to the editor. Um, and he gets in the elevator, and there's a woman there with, with white gloves, and she seemed kind of secretive, and that she too served as an influence for the cat. Um, is that is that one of Seuss's tales? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the source, there's, there's two sources for that. One source of that is Judith and Neil Morgan's biography of Dr. Seuss. They mention the elevator, they mention um, the elevator operator having white gloves and a secret smile. However, mm -hmm. the other source for that story is Anita Silvey. Um, she's oh. the one who gave me the name Annie Williams and that Annie Williams was African-American. That's not in the Morgan's biography. So I learned that from Anita Silvey, who mentioned that we were both interviewed by NPR when The Annotated Cat came out. And so I thought that was really interesting that there was an African-American woman um, with white gloves and a secret mile who is at least one of the influences on the cat in the hat. There's also Crazy Cat uh, as another influence on the cat in the hat. I think we could probably count Puss in Boots and the Cheshire Cat as influences mm -hmm. on the hat. And most controversially, Blackface Minstrelsy, which influences many popular characters and not just Dr. Seuss, um, the Scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz, Bugs Bunny, those white gloves, Mickey Mouse in those white gloves and his outlandish costume. So blackface minstrelsy is in a lot of places in American culture, and it's so normal a part of American culture that I think a lot of people don't recognize it. Although once you point that out, it becomes hard to unsee. And Nicholas Salmond has a whole book on the influence of blackface on early cartoon industry. It's called um, Birth of an Industry. So if you want to pursue that further, that's, you know, pursue the notes there. But yeah, so, so the, yeah, the cat in the hat, like a lot of other American popular culture, has blackface minstrelsy as part of his lineage. And of course, so does Seuss. Seuss wrote and performed in a blackface minstrel mm -hmm. skit in blackface when he was in high school, um, which was a popular form of entertainment then. And of course, it's super racist. Um, and those things... I think people find difficult to to accept um, because most people think of racism as aberrant and not as ordinary, whereas, of course, it is ordinary. Um, perfectly nice people can be racist. That's kind of the way it works. It's not like someone says, this morning, I think I'll do something racist. It's more mm -hmm. that society influences you and, and Dr. Seuss's image library is shaped by the culture in which he lived. 
And these things emerge in your behavior and in your artwork uh, and in your storytelling. And so, you know, it requires a certain level of reflection and self-awareness to push against that. And one thing I sometimes say about Dr. Seuss is he's the woke white guy who isn't as woke as he thinks he is. Um, <laughs> and, and because, you know, he does books like like The Sneetches, right? Or like Horton right. Who, right. Um, which are anti-discrimination um and are often held up as evidence for well well the cat in the hat can't be have any racist history because he did the sneeches right right but but of course um as anyone with even a, a passing knowledge of history or racism can tell you you know liberals do racist things um oh, yeah. ra racism infiltrates the imaginations of everyone including people of color um you know it, it may produce a, a different result, such as self-hatred um, in, in a person of color than it might presume, pr produce in a white person, but it still has an effect. Um, we, we all grow up uh, in this country, uh, and we all grow up in a racist society, and that has an effect on the way we see ourselves in the world. And it had an effect on Dr. Seuss. For whatever good intentions and good work, he also did. So, but people seem to find that difficult those two ideas difficult to, to hold in their brains because people correctly understand racism as evil, um, but don't recognize the way in which they and the artists they love might participate in that. So, and, you know, I, I said earlier that Dr. Seuss is the white guy or the woke white guy who isn't as woke as he thinks he is, but you know, I could say the same thing of myself. Uh, I'm oh, a white sure. guy, you know, I, I, I try to do the right thing. I, I try to be conscious of my own, racialized imagination and but i'm sure i don't always succeed that, that's that's just the way it is and i'm obviously working on it so mm -hmm. yeah and i i think well I, I mean if you're white in america i think you should be able to say that about yourself um yeah you may think that you know that you're more open-minded than other people but I'm, I'm i'm sure i make mistakes i know i make mistakes all the time um and it's interesting how little until maybe the last few years, I even knew about black. I knew about blackface and minstrel shows. You know, you're watching some old movie and you're really enjoying it. And then, oh, let's put on a minstrel show. And you're like, what? why? Why? Mickey Rooney. Why? Mickey Rooney. Garland. Right? Mickey Rooney. Oh, God. Yeah. No. And, or uh, Bing Crosby and Holiday Inn, right? Exactly. Holiday Inn. That's Kate and I have a long discussion about Holiday Inn where we're trying to figure out if it's Holiday Inn or White Christmas. Fun fact, both. So right. <laughs> we're just like, ah, why are you ruining my movie with this? But yeah. we aren't taught about how it was everywhere. And one case, uh, and certainly I got this from your book, and when you, you don't see it until you see it, um, and you mentioned Crazy Cat. Well, of course, you know, Crazy Cat, well, loved of cartoonists, um, a huge influence on everything from Calvin and Hobbes to Mutz. Um, you mentioned it, it worked off a lot of minstrel tropes, and I was shocked. And then, of course it did. I mean, once you see it, you're like, oh, 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 okay. Well, and interestingly, too, Harriman, who was a cartoonist of color. I um, know. I was going to say that, right? Yes. He, he passed as white. And the ones that are, are working with sort of more racialized tropes, he's often signifying a bit and, and mm. playing with that in a way that's, I think, a little more critical and reflective than you might see in Seuss, who I don't think is, is playing with him quite that way. Um, so... 
yeah, so, so Herman is, is quite an interesting um, artist in that regard, too. And, and if people are interested in Herman, you must, must, must read uh, Michael Tisserand's, um biography of George Herman because uh, it is just fantastic. It's, it I am is, so glad you mentioned that because I was going to put it in the show notes, but I could not remember who the author oh, was. So. It is so fascinating. He's gone and done all the research about the Harriman family, you know, growing up in New Orleans, um, where, of course, Harriman, as a child, the birth certificate reads colored, um, but mm-hmm. he later decides to pass as white for obvious reasons. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just a super fascinating bio, and he's done all the done all the research so but anyway that's a, that's a bit of a tangent but yeah crazy that's cat. A, I, that was a tangent i was intending to go on anyway i actually have a whole question just for that so there you go we, we we've touched on it anyway it works out perfectly um so it's it's funny going back a little bit to what you're talking about before you know we, white people really really like their stuff and and they don't really love when they're supposed to uh consider that there's other stuff that you could replace with their stuff um I'm such an eloquent speaker, but when you talk to people about the cat's history and people get defensive, they, they, they act as if you're, you're hurting them personally to give them additional information about the cat. And, and I'm no educator. Um, so what do you feel is the best use of the cat today? Well, I think the cat can open up a conversation. Mm-hmm. People who are willing to be reflective about the culture that they absorb and not everybody is willing to be reflective right the culture that they absorb i mean a few thoughts first i would say that you have the overtly racist dr seuss like the african islander jerka in if i ran mm-hmm. zoo for example oh, gosh, that the zamba matant with helpers are all where there's eyes at a slant in the same mm-hmm. book See, Katie Ishizuka and Ramon Stevens' article, The Cat is Out of the Bag, Orientalism, Anti-Blackness, and White Supremacy in Dr. Seuss's Children's Books in the journal Research on Diversity in Youth Literature, which you can access for free and download it for free. They go through all the racist tropes in Seuss's books, right, and his cartoons. So, so that's one side, right? And then there's the other side where you have Seuss making an effort in with Nietzsche's, in, uh, in, in Horton Hears a Who... The Butter um, Battle and, book. Yeah, and Yertle the Turtle, right? You've got a whole Yertle, other... right, yeah. The cat I put somewhere in between those two. It's mm-hmm. not as overt as the racist caricature that's in some of his work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it's also not quite as obviously uh, aiming to be progressive as the other work. So it's somewhere in between. What I would say, though, is that I think the, the, the influence of blackface minstrelsy on the cat in the hat re-encodes that in our imaginations and might make actual blackface menstruacy more easy to accept because of that. And so I think that is a potential problem with mm-hmm. the book. There is certainly other Dr. Seuss that you can teach and not worry about. Um, but that is a question that I have about the cat in the hat uh, and would make me hesitate to put it at the top of my, my list of, of recommended books for young people. Um, but I mean, as, as you say, well, as, as, as your comment leads me to say, perhaps I should say, I don't mean to put mm-hmm. words in your mouth, oh, um, people have very deep emotional ties to what they loved as children. Yes, they do. 
And, you know, we know this ourselves, right? We have deep emotional ties to the work that we love as children. And I understand that. And I, and I understand why when you point out some of the problems with something that person loved when they were a child, that people take it personally. They do. It, it can feel like an attack on them mm-hmm. because it's something they love. And it's, you can't argue with love, right? Right. Because it's love. Um, but I, I would also say that, well, there's different kinds of nostalgia. Um, and one kind is dangerous. And, and that is the kind that refuses to reflect. That is the kind that holds up this object from the past as something that cannot be thought about, that must only be revered, that must only be loved in an uncomplicated way. But you can also reflect. You can also look at the problems with, the gaps, the mistakes um, in something that you loved. And I think that's what people need to do. And if you need the, the footnotes on this, it's Svetlana Boym is the scholar who makes the distinction between different kinds of, of nostalgia. And, and she sort of is interested in promoting a more reflective nostalgia. Because it's not bad to be nostalgic, but it depends to what end that nostalgia is, is going. Um, and the kind that, that longs for this idyllic past, this beautiful childhood, is a very, very dangerous one. Um, that, that is where authoritarianism begins. Um, that is where intolerance begins. Um, mm-hmm. That's where Trump begins, right? That, that, is, that is that. But on the other side, you know, we can also recall fondly items from the past and also what's broken about them and what we might think critically of them. And, and I think that's the, the, that more complicated relationship to the cat or any problematic culture is worth pursuing if we want to become better people and build a better society for generations to come. Well said, sir. Well said. Just to sort of go back to what you mentioned before, you, you mentioned that The Cat in the Hat Comes Back was one of the first actual beginner books um, yeah. or the series. Yeah. Um, I just, and you know, I haven't done this book with Kate yet, um, so I will at some point. I obviously couldn't until we did the first cat book. Um, it's such an odd, <laughs> odd book. I mean, even compared to the first one, and I've always sort of looked at it and been like, oh, I desperately want to put a metaphor on this. I desperately want it to be about the spread of communism. It's yeah. literally about pink spreading, but yeah. I think it precedes a lot of things for it to be that way. But am I alone in that interpretation of it? No, there's lots of interpretations of The Cat in the Hat Comes Back, and certainly it it echoes the U.S. containment policy of the time, (laughs) so it's not not at all... um, That's not an anachronistic claim to make. Um, There is, of course, the boom, which has the... transformative effects of, of something yeah. nuclear without quite the destructive effects, right? I mean, it, it does literally uh, change the landscape. It, it's kind of a almost, almost an inverse. Uh, uh, it is an inverse, yes. It, it cleans everything up, although mm-hmm. there is something slightly unsettling about the way that it, that it does that. So yes. I think to, to find echoes of, of um, the Cold War in, in the imagery and the metaphors in there, you're not alone in doing that. I, I can't claim that, that that's something Seuss was aiming for, but 
it's certainly well, possible yeah, no, that no. his imagination was reflecting some unconscious anxieties about the moment that he was writing. I mean, honestly, right. I mean, and, and just as he probably wasn't consciously using minstrel tropes for the cat, possibly. Oh, oh, I'm, I'm sure he wasn't conscious. Well, right. not sure, sure, but not I doubt sure, he sure. Was <laughs> hey, let's make a minstrel character. I mean, it would seem unlikely, at least, although not impossible, given that this is the 1950s and not the 1980s, so not impossible. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, there's all sorts of things you can consider in the book that, uh, you know, it, it's part of the fun of reading literature, that a book like The Cat in the Hat or The Cat in the Hat comes back can sustain lots of different interpretations ways of thinking about it and you know that's that's one of the fun things about stories is making meaning which is what we do when we read them it's not what what the author does it's what we exactly. do and we interact with them so so sure you're you're not alone that's excellent well what are you working on next these days can you say uh... <laughs> oh say can i say oh say can you say i can say um gosh what am i working on these days <laughs> I don't know if any of this is going to be interesting to your listeners, so I'll just say some things, and then uh, whatever's boring can be thrown. <laughs> okay. So That's fair. I have been editing all of Crockett Johnson's cartoon strip Barnaby. The first three volumes are out, so he's That's best right. for Harold and the Purple Crayon. The fourth book has been delayed. I'm told it will be out next year. I finished my work on it a couple of years ago, and there's one more volume in that. Those are from Fanagraphics. Um, the other under contract project is the second edition of Keywords for Children's Literature, which has more essays than the first one, mm -hmm. and everyone had to update and revise, and also it is explicitly international. We have people whose first languages are not English and who are working in traditions that are not English. We really want him to expand the project uh, globally. Uh, so those are the two things that are under contract. Uh, or to, I guess, projects that are under contract. And then there's some smaller stuff. Oh, there's a piece I need to turn in on the need to tell the truth about Trump in children's books. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah, and then there's some other longer term uh, projects. There's one called, which aren't under contract. There's one called How to Read Harold, uh, Crockett Johnson, A Purple Crayon and the Making of a Children's Classic. Um, it's a, both a biography of a book and kind of a primer on how to read children's books that uses Harold as its as its main focus. And and in some ways, it's a bit like how to read Nancy. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, yeah, yeah, that's pretty popular actually around here. You get many different ways the book version rather than yeah. the edited version. Um, you get many different ways of thinking about a single book. So mm -hmm. that's quite fun. But I'm, I'm also working on conversations about diversity in children's literature across national borders. Most of our conversations tend to happen within a particular country or continent like North America. Mm -hmm. So um, I was just at a conference in Glasgow that was uh, on that very subject. Um, uh, researchers exploring inclusive youth literature. It was very, very interesting. It was organized by a couple of, of graduate students, Brie McDaniel and Josh Simpson. And then I'm working with a German scholar, uh, myself, an article on how German picture books uh, address the multiculturalism in, in Germany. Um, so again, I find this interesting. I don't know if other people do. And so I feel like I should heed my own advice and just stop. 
Okay. The problem is, of course, that I find all of this incredibly fascinating. I'm like, oh, I've, I've heard of, you know, there was a recent exhibit about uh, how the Jews were portrayed in, in German uh, uh, literature of, of during Hitler's era. There was, I don't remember yeah. where that exhibit that was going on right book. now. That mushroom book where the Jews are mm-hmm. compared to British mushrooms. Yeah, I've actually seen that book. It's, yeah. it's beautifully illustrated and super anti-Semitic, um, which, you know, is another... To come back around again, another nice example of how art can be both beautiful and racist, you know, can mm-hmm. be both well executed and really damaging and not something that you should pass on to younger people. So, um, but yeah, I've, I, I, I know the book that you mean, and I have not seen that particular exhibit, but I've, I've read about some of those books and I have, I did actually, when I was in Berlin, see one of the most famous books, which is the one that, that compares Compared to juice to poisonous mushrooms, so yeah, it's it's pretty mm. pretty horrible. Um, yep, that's pretty horrible, horrible stuff. Yeah. All right, well, Phil Nell, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast, for giving us this much like extra information and background that I just wouldn't be able to have access to otherwise. Uh, you're very welcome. I, I hope at least a small fraction of it was of interest. I I think a large fraction, but all right. <laughs> All right. We don't have to do the math right now, but uh, thanks. Thanks for having me and uh, have fun with it. Thank you. I will do so.